I want to thank the funding resources. This schmooze is sponsored. This is the annual Chuva schmooze, which is sponsored by <coughs> Ellie Krieger from Funding Resources. He annually sponsors the Chuva schmooze. This year's Chuva schmooze, he has sponsored Le'ilu Nishmas Pinchas Ben Eliyahu Ezra. May it be a schus and Ilu Nishama, and may he have much, much continued Hatzlacha. I want to thank him for his continued support. People have different life settings. In general terms, Vayayim Shamoa, if you listen to the Torah, you'll have a good life, you'll have rain in the proper time, you'll have what you need. But despite that, there are different life settings. Meaning to say, before you were born, Hashem determined exactly the type of life you should have, exactly the type of setting, which is the perfect environment for your growth. Not every environment is ideal in the objective sense. We wouldn't want some of these environments, but nevertheless Hashem in His ultimate wisdom and ultimate mercy chooses the perfect environment for each person. And the Medrash tells us an environment that isn't so appealing, nevertheless it was granted to a great tzaddik, and that was Shimon ben Chalafta. Shimon ben Chalafta was a tremendous Tamachacham, a Gadol Yisrael. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, and despite the fact that he was a great Torah leader and a great tzaddik, he had a very difficult life, abject poverty, complete poverty. And the Medrash gives us an example, Shabbat Maisa Shimon ben Chalafta, Shabbat Erev Shabbos, one Erev Shabbos he comes, he had nothing to eat. He had no food, no money to buy food with, and he found himself without anything for that Shabbos. He went outside the city, and he davened to Hashem, he said, please give me something. A hand came out and a precious gem was presented to him. He now had this very precious gem. He went to the Shulchani, he went to the merchant and he got enough money to buy food for Shabbos and he comes home with all, everything he needs for that Shabbos and he shows up in the house. His wife says to him, where did you get all this from? And uh, he said, uh, from what Hashem gave me. What do you mean? What do you mean? Tell me what happened. And uh, she said, uh, he said, I, Hashem gave me. She said, I'm not going to touch a morsel of food unless you tell me where you got this from. He said, I damned to Hashem. This nace happened. A hand came from Shemayim and presented a precious stone to me. And I used that to buy food for Shabbos. She said, I am not going to be nene from this food. I'm not going to eat it. Do you want your shulchan, do you want your table to be empty and your friend's table to be full? <clears throat> he said, what do you mean? She said, it's obviously going to come off of your olam haba. I don't want a part of it. I'm not going to partake in it until you promise me that you're going to return it. In any case, <clears throat> he promises. But <clears throat> after he promises, he goes to Rabbi Huda Nasi, and he explains what his wife said. And Rabbi Huda Nasi said, Tell your wife that if your shulchan, if your table is empty in the world to come, I'll provide for you there, and you'll have plenty to eat. At which point he comes back, Rabbi Shimon Mechalafta comes back to his wife, tells her what Rabbi Huda Nasi says, and she says, Take me to the person who taught you Torah. She goes together with her husband to Rabbi Huda Nasi, and she says to Rabbi Huda Nasi, Isn't it true that each person is given their own mechitza in the world to come? Each tzaddik has their own place? How are you going to possibly provide for my husband? At which point Rabbi Huda Nasi agreed. And in fact, after Shabbos, Rabbi Shem davened again, and a greater nace happened. They took back from him that precious stone, and that's how the Medrash ends. Now, I'd like to ask what I consider two obvious questions on this Medrash. Number one, well, it sounds very pious what she d- did. I'm not sure it's so smart because, listen, you don't have anything to eat. <clears throat> okay, let's in fact assume for some reason you understand that this is going to come off your husband's world to come. I'm sure he has a vast array of tremendous mitzvahs, tremendous chusim. He's a tremendous tamachacham. He's a tana. <clears throat> He's a leader in the Klai Yisrael. Okay, one little fraction of one little part of his reward <clears throat> you might be getting in this world. Isn't it worth it not to be in poverty, not to be in pain, and not to be in hunger? That's question number one. But question number two is, didn't Rabbi Huda Nasi say to her, 
if your husband is lacking, if something's taken from him, I'll provide. And somehow, it's almost like she slugs up the Galador. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is the Mechaber of Mishnayas. He was a leading Torah sage, and apparently what she said was a refutation to him, and in fact he agreed, and in fact the Medrash seems to conclude that she was right. So question number one is, isn't it worth giving up a little bit of the world to come? And question number two is, what was the back and forth with Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, and how in fact did she refute him, did she slug him up? And to understand the answers to this, I'd like to focus on what I call the four mistakes we make about the world to come. There are four <coughs> common mistakes that we make about Olam Haba, and these four mistakes are so prevalent and so almost pedestrian, so much accepted, that they completely block our vision. Let me begin with mistake number one. <coughs> mistake number one is what I call will all be angels in white. If you ask the average person, are you afraid of dying? I mean, in theory, I don't want to die, but listen... I learned, I I did okay. And besides, it's all going to be good. You know why? Because in the world to come, we'll all be up there, we'll all be angels in white, we'll all be dancing in glee forever and ever in harmony. It's going to be wonderful, it's going to be beautiful. That mistake is a very egregious mistake and isn't that difficult to solve. Because you see, while it is true that in Mitzvah Hashem will all be there, we're not all going to be angels in white dancing forever in harmony, in glee, on and on. And the Sulasharm explains that it's poshut to any bardas, any thinking, intelligent person will understand that the madregas, the levels in the world to come, are given out in exact accordance to how much work you put in. And the more effort, the more energy you put in, the more you work at it, the higher your level, and the less you work at it, the lower your level. And then he says something very, very powerful. There are many people who say, listen, I don't need the front row in Gan Eden. I'll take the back row. Listen, it's not, I don't have to push myself in to be right there in the front row. I'll be in Gan Eden. It's good enough. Says Mr. Shem, one simple observation. I'll prove to you that you're lying to yourself. Why? Watch what happens to anything in your world when it comes to COVID. Do you ever notice people get very, very bent out of shape? And even though it may be true that I don't need to be the biggest name and I don't have to have my name up in lights, but the minute that someone who I'm close with, someone in my peer group, gets something bigger or better, suddenly there's a very, very real pressure. Explains to Mr. Silasham, could you imagine if those people that you feel you tower over, <clears throat> you feel you're much better than, you're much greater than, and you see in the world to come that they're going to be shining lights and you're going to be no one? The embarrassment and the busha will be so intense. He says the only reason why you're not pushing forward is because you think that it's all going to be good. If you understood that it's absolutely dependent on how much energy, how much effort, you'd be very driven. And we human beings are very, very sensitive to how others look at us, how others <coughs> consider us, but especially more than anything, not to be lower. If everyone else has a house and you're still in an apartment, Everyone else has a nice car and you don't have a nice car. If everyone has a good job and you have a kind of mediocre job, there's an embarrassment. That's in passing things. That's in things that are fleeting and irrelevant. Could you imagine the world to come when there'll be people who you looked at as no one who shine and tower over you? Number one, he says, it's obvious to any intelligent person that the madregas, the levels are given out in accordance to how hard you work. And number two, it's obvious that if you realize that you're really going to be there, you'd be very driven. And in fact, this first concept that we're all angels in white is patently false, because again, Amitashim will all be there, but in vastly different levels and vastly different positions. And that's the first mistake I think we make about the world to come. But then there's a second mistake. The second mistake, I think, is that we say that in general sense, I'm okay. So for instance, Let's say you apply for a job. You apply for a job and the person interviewing you says, tell me, uh, how do you do in school? What you're going to tell them is your GPA. You're not going to tell them, well, in chemistry, I got an A+. Plus. In math, I got a B-. Minus. In history, I got a C. You're going to give them your grade point average. You take the four years, all the courses, <coughs> add them up, and divide them, and you'll have a grade point average. You got a B+, plus, C-, C-, minus, A+. Plus. Whatever your... <coughs> grade point average is, that's what you present to your employer, 
and he knows that you are a good student or not based on your GPA. And I think a lot of people view the world to come like that. Listen, on balance, I'm okay. I'm not a great tzaddik. I'm not saying I did everything good. I did plenty of things wrong, but on balance, I'm okay. You know, in general terms, I did good, I did bad, but on balance, I'm okay, so I don't got to worry about the world to come. The problem is that there's no GPA when it comes to the world to come. If you'd like to fundamentally understand what it's like, I'll give you a little muscle. Understanding certain world events requires real, real perspective, and oftentimes it's difficult to relate to. One such world event is the Holocaust. When you try to envision six million people being killed, but each one a separate carbon, each one a separate tragedy, and yet it's so large, and yet to be so personal is very difficult. The Holocaust Museum in New York came out with an exhibit, an exhibit that I think well, de- well depicts that sort of balance. As you walk into the Holocaust Museum, you see a very tall wall, and it's round, and all up and down the wall you'll see pictures, pictures of older people, younger people, kids, middle-aged people, and this woman, that man, and you see thousands and thousands of pictures all the way up the wall, all going around, literally thousands of pictures, The idea being you get to see the tremendous perspective of the thousands of people, and yet each one is a face, each one is someone you could identify with. And it's a very important exhibit. And I believe it's also a very important muscle. If you'd like to know what it's like in the world to come, it's very simple. My body hits the ground, I separate, and whoosh! Every event of my life is right there. Every event. When I was a kid, middle age, when I was here, when I was first married, first child, Every event like a separate picture, but not thousands of pictures, millions of pictures, every event, every single activity I was involved in, everything of my entire life is right there. But it's not just the visual track, the audio track is there as well, as well as the intention, the Kavana track, it's all there because it's all a part of me for eternity. But you see, the point is, it's not on balance it's not, I was a good guy, did something wrong, did some good, so on balance, I'm a good guy. Every single action <coughs> weighed, measured, and accounted for. Every mitzvah, I'm greatly rewarded for. Every avera, <coughs> I have to answer for. But every one of them is there, and every one of them is a part of me. So the first mistake we make about <coughs> the world to come is to think, well, we'll all be angels in white. It's not true at all. It'll be vastly different. And there'll be vast, vast differences in people's world to come based on how hard you work, how much effort you put in. The second difference is we think that on balance I'm okay. That's how I'm going to be judged. It's not on balance. Every action, everything is weighed, measured, and accounted for. Thousands, millions of pictures right there and each one weighed, measured, and each one I answer for. But there's a third mistake I think that we make about the world to come. And this one is a lot more egregious. There's an entire industry of travel brochures, people who print these, people who write these, people who take the pictures, and they're very, very enticing. You'll see white beaches, you'll see cloudless skies, and you see an entire industry dedicated to showing you the parts of the world, African rainforest, Jamaica, Aruba, Gulf of Mexico, And they're very, very well crafted, and they're very well written. And you'll watch people as they read the pamphlets, and they get entranced, and they get into it. And what's interesting to note is that most people, when they pick up these pamphlets, have no intention of going to those places. Listen, it's very nice to read about. Jamaica, Aruba, Gulf of Mexico, it's wonderful, but I have no intention of going there. But I read the travel brochures because it's engaging, entertaining, it's interesting. I think most of us think about the world to come sort of like travel brochures. Wow, the descriptions of a chazal, it's great, it's amazing, wow. And one whiff of the world to come is more pleasurable than every pleasure in this world. And I get to be close to Hashem, it sounds great, it really... But to be honest with you, I, I have no intention of being there. It's, uh, I'll be dead. I mean, you know, my neshama... My alter ego, my distant cousin, some splintered down version of me, but I'll be dead. I have no intention of really being there. So, to be honest with you, this whole business about the world to come is not that relevant to me. 
And this is a mistake that I think is pervasive to the human. Not being able to see the simple reality that it's going to be me. But here's the problem. The reason why it's so difficult to see me in the world to come is because I'll be dead. (laughs) I'll be dead. I mean, like, my whole life, all I've been is inside this body. And the body is going to be dead. So that means the body's dead, so, so I'm dead, so I'm, 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 I'm not around. What, like, I'm not around. I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not, I'm not what, what do you mean, I'll be alive? So I'd like to spend a few minutes on understanding <clears throat> what it's like that I <clears throat> will be there, I will live on for eternity. So let's start with a simple observation. Imagine it's a Sunday morning, <clears throat> and you're kind of lazily looking through the uh, papers, and in the back you turn to the lotto section and you look at the numbers, seven, eight, four, three, four, four. oh my God, hey, wait, that, oh, those, those are my numbers, what, you run back to your drawer and pull out your lottery ticket, you match it up, and see, that's it, I won $365 million, wow! If I would have asked you at that moment, what did you feel? I suspect the answer would be elation, joy, jubilee, I mean... Pretty good, 365 million. And then if I were to ask you who felt that? Now, it wasn't your arms, it wasn't your leg, it wasn't your head, it wasn't your chest. You experienced great joy. You are the one inside. You're the one who thinks, you're, you're the one who remembers, you're the one who experienced that great joy. So to the opposite. Let's say I started yelling at you. I called you every name in the book, and I said, I can't even believe people like you even exist. I, and imagine that you turned red and you turned white, and then someone were to ask you, who felt embarrassed? Answer is you. <clears throat> but what does that mean, you felt embarrassed? It wasn't your head that felt embarrassed. It wasn't your chest. It wasn't your leg. <clears throat> it wasn't your face. Your face may have turned red, but you felt deeply embarrassed. Explains the so Salant, if you would like to understand death, it's really quite simple. Imagine I walk into the room and I hang up my coat. I emerge. I'm the one inside. I'm the one who thinks. I'm the one who feels. I'm the one who remembers. My body is put in the ground and I emerge and there I am for eternity. But it's me. All of my thoughts, all of my aspirations, the same I who I'm thinking here right now, the same I who I'm telling my arms to move, I will be there the body is the coat. The coat is put in the ground, and I separate. But the problem is, we typically don't think of death like that. Typically, we think of death as in, like, going to sleep, as in, it'll be asleep. In fact, if you go to a base chorus, you'll see, at rest, Harvey was a good man, he's in his final resting place. Rest in peace, Harvey. But that concept is almost the opposite of what death is. You see, when you go to sleep, I am not there. Imagine I break my arm. I'm in terrible pain. I, I take Tylenol. It doesn't help. Tylenol codeine doesn't help. Perks at nothing. I'm finally, <clears throat> 3 a.m., I fall asleep. I'm no longer experiencing the pain because I'm gone. I'm asleep. Most people think of death as kind of like going to sleep. I'll be asleep. My, you know, <clears throat> my, my neshama, my distant cousin, alter ego, some splendid down version of me will be up there in Shemayim dancing in glee with all the other angels, but... I'll be dead. Explains the Rishos there's only one mistake you're making, the biggest mistake of your entire existence. You won't be dead. And when my body's put in the ground, suddenly whoosh, with an absolute acuity, with total complete alertness, I wake up. You see, in this body, I'm half asleep, and sometimes I feel things, sometimes I don't, sometimes I'm confused, sometimes I'm not. But when I leave this body behind with absolute acuity, clarity of mind, <clears throat> complete understanding, whoosh, I wake up, and what I shape myself into, I am for eternity. And that means every action, every thought, every deed, but it's not my distant cousin, not my alter ego, not my neshama, my neshama is going to burn, uh-uh, it's me, and me responsible, rich, richly rewarded for everything I accomplished, and the opposite having to answer for everything that I did wrong. But again, it's me, the same I who thinks and the same I who remembers. If the first mistake is we think we'll all be angels in dancing in white, there are vast, vast differences between people 
And if you don't think it's going to bother you, it will bother you intensely. But this biggest mistake we make is we think it's my neshama, I'll be asleep. <coughs> Explains the Rishol Salante, that's not true at all, quite the opposite. I'll be completely alert, vitally alert. And by the way, <coughs> it's worth reading books that are written today that deal with this. You see, this concept used to be very hard to relate to. If you tell me <coughs> 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, it might have been very hard to relate to. What do you mean, uh, my, my, my body will be in the ground and I'll be alive? In 1979, Raymond Moody wrote a book <coughs> called Life After Life. And he coined a phrase. The phrase is near-death experience. A near-death experience is a <coughs> situation where <coughs> the person was effectively clinically dead. It might have been for four minutes to six minutes. There was no respiration, <coughs> often no EEG, no electrical current going through the brain. If they're revitalized within four to six minutes, it turns out that approximately 33% of these people <coughs> describe what Raymond Moody called a near-death experience. And all of the cases that are reported had this eerie commonality where they'd all describe kind of popping out of the body and <coughs> watching from above. But the odd part was that they saw things, remembered things that they couldn't possibly have seen because they weren't there, they were unconscious, or they're in parts of the world that they couldn't have been there. When he published this book, it was a chronicle of hundreds of such cases, <coughs> near-death experiences, and it caused a tremendous stir in the scientific community because it made no sense. When the body's dead and I'm alive, it makes no sense. Since that time, there have been thousands upon thousands of cases that have been reported and corroborated, and it's become an accepted medical fact. We don't understand what it means, but somehow the body's dead, and the person lives on, makes no sense, but apparently it's accepted. A number of years ago, Lancet Magazine, which is a prestigious British medical journal, published a study. This was to be the ultimate summary study of all the various studies about near-death experiences, and this was to be the culmination of mankind's knowledge on the subject. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of the actual studies, but I'll share with you one anecdote that Lancet magazine reported. There was a 36-year-old woman who suffered an aneurysm in the brain, bleeding in the brain. Now, just a word before I were to caution, there's a little bit of gore in the story. It's nothing horrible, but I just want to preface that. In any case, she comes to the uh, to the hospital, and normally, medical procedure is pretty straightforward. They open the skull, find the bleeding area, cauterize it, use a hot probe and sear the tissue, and generally, it's not life-threatening. The problem was, in her case, the bleeding was so deep in her brain that if the surgeon went in, he would have caused so much residual bleeding that she would have bled to death. The surgeon said to her, I'm sorry, madam, there's nothing we can do. Effectively, he was sending her home to die. There was another doctor on that team who asked to, sit, to meet with her, and he said, madam, I've been studying this case very carefully. It's never been tried, but I have a theory. I believe that if we were to put you under anesthetic and draw the blood out of your head, if the surgeon were to go in and quickly enough corduroy the area, you couldn't bleed because there'd be no blood in your head. <clears throat> I believe we could then put the blood back in after the tissue was seared, <clears throat> and I believe we could save your life. Now here was the problem. There was no other alternative. She consulted with other medical professionals. She consulted with the clergy. There was no other option. So she, under- she agreed to undergo the procedure. And the study describes, she comes into the hospital, but they had to make sure that there was absolutely no bleeding whatsoever. They put tape over her eyes, put special probes in her ears, put her under anesthetic, then put her body into a bath of ice. They had to get the core temperature as low as they could, and yet still maybe potentially revive her. In any case, the surgeon opens the skull, finds a bleeding area, there's no blood there, he cauterizes it, sears the tissue, closes the skull back up. They take her out of the bath of ice, put the blood back into her head, and astonishingly, she survived. A few hours after the operation, the surgeon went in to visit the patient to see how she was doing. And he describes that when he walked into the room, she began laughing. Doctor, (laughs) I have to share with you, when you operated on me, I had this strange hallucination. I dreamt that I popped out of my body. The doctor didn't laugh because he had been through enough near-death experiences to recognize the signs. And then she goes on, but but doctor, this is the funniest part. 
when I was hovering by the ceiling, I saw you took an electric toothbrush, and you tried to put this electric toothbrush into my thigh, but it didn't fit. <clears throat> so you <clears throat> you turned to the nurse next to you and you said it doesn't fit. She tried. She said try again. You tried a second time. You said it doesn't fit. She said try again. You tried a third time and then it fit. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The doctor didn't laugh. <clears throat> the doctor turned white because <clears throat> part of the medical procedure involved taking an instrument that from a distance could look like an electric toothbrush. He had to put it into a vein in her thigh, but the vein was occluded. It was too small. He tried to insert it, and he turned to the surgical nurse next to him, and he said, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. <clears throat> he tried a second time. He said, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. He tried a third time, and it fit. But that conversation between doctor and nurse was held while this woman's body was in a bath of ice. She was blue in the face, completely not there. And when you read of thousands of such cases of people not being there, but clearly remembering, <clears throat> clearly s- describing exactly what happens, you begin to get it. I'm not the body. I'm the guy inside. I'm the one inside. My body's been in the ground, and then for eternity, I am what I shape myself into. And if you'd like to understand <clears throat> why the wife of Shimon Bar said to her husband, I'm not tasting that until you promise you're going to return it, it's because she understood something that his life was supposed to be including poverty. And if he was given this kind of wealth, it was coming off his world to come. And even though it might not have been a lot, it just wasn't worth it. Because you're trading eternity for something temporary. She saw things with such clarity. She understood with such clarity of vision that it's going to be him. It's going to be her. They're going to share in their world to come. And whatever they are is what they are for eternity. And she realized it wasn't worth it. You see, the problem that we have is the world we live in looms very large. And things in our world are very, very important. And the world to come is vague, unclear, and it surely doesn't have great value. But she didn't have the obstacle that we have. And she saw with great clarity, understood that it's me, understood that it's for eternity, and whatever I shape myself into is what I enjoy forever. And it was one more step that she understood. Here's a very important question to ask yourself. How good is Hashem at doing that which Hashem does? Not a bad question. How good is the creator of the heavens and earth at doing that which Hashem does? So, if you're not quite sure, study this creation. Look at the vastness. Look at the complexity. Study a cell. Study a body. Study any organism. And you'll see a human being. And you'll see the most incredibly complex organisms, systems of organs... And that's beyond any human being's understanding, let alone capacity. And you understand the vastness. A hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars. It doesn't take long to realize that God is quite good at doing that which God does. Here's the observation. Could you imagine if Hashem created a world for one purpose? For us to have the ultimate enjoyment? For us to be in a state of absolute pleasure close to Hashem for eternity? Could you imagine the pleasure within pleasures, and whiffs within whiffs, flavors within flavors, the intensity, the incredible value of every moment there? You and I may have great difficulty relating to that, but these people didn't. And because they saw it with such clarity, it just wasn't worth it. Because she understood that you're trading away diamonds for copper coins, for pennies. It's just not worth it. A little bit of money in this world, what's, what's that worth? Would you like to understand her clarity? Imagine the following. <clears throat> Imagine that it's 1985, and Apple goes public. The IPO of Apple Computer. And you know <clears throat> that Apple is likely going to do pretty well. As a matter of fact, very well. As a matter of fact, very, very well. To the extent that if you were to have taken $10,000 in 1985 and bought let's say 5,000 shares, it was $20 a share when it initially came out, if you held on to that money till today, that $10,000 would be worth, oh, about $6.4 million. Oh my goodness, $10,000, I'll get $100,000, I'll beg, I'll borrow, I'll get, what, that money is going to be multiplied so many times. The incredible, in our world, money has great value. And if you know that an investment is going to pay you back in spades, you'll beg, borrow, and steal to buy it, to get involved in it, because you know the reward is so vast. The problem that we face is, because I'm in this body, 
I forget that this body is a temporary housing. I think that I'm here forever. I think that I'm here in this state forever. And I forget that every human being who ever walked the face of this planet eventually went the way of all men. And that is, they hit the ground. And I will separate, like every other person who passed before me, but it's me, the same me who thinks, and the same I who feels, and the incredible value of every mitzvah, and the incredible value of every moment of accomplishment in this world is paid back in such incredible reward in the world to come, and that it's not like buying Apple stock at $20 a share and having it then multiply thousands of times. It's infinitely larger, infinitely bigger. The problem that we have is we don't see it that way, but the wife of Roshim and Bechalafta did because they had that clarity, that vision, and therefore she said it's not worth it to trade away the world to come, anything, a splinter, the world to come for, for, for just a little bit of money, for a little bit of comfort, it's not worth it. I don't want to be a part of it. Now, this concept, if we were to stop here, I believe would have great value to us. Because it wouldn't take a rocket scientist to realize that we're a few days away from a, arguably the most important day of the year. You see, Yom Kippur is a day that's unique in the Jewish calendar. It's Yom Slicha Umachila. It's a day that Hashem designated as a day to wipe out a tremendous amount of things that I've done wrong and undo the record. Could you imagine what it would be like if I were to leave this earth and I come into that hall of pictures, every single action of my life up there, this time when I was a kid, this time when I was a teenager, this time when I was first married, and every single picture, millions and millions of pictures. I'm quite confident that there will be many of those pictures that I'd be very proud of. Very, very proud of. Uh, and some of those pictures that I would not be quite so proud of, and there'd be many of them that I'd be darned embarrassed, ashamed to the core of my essence. Could you imagine if I could touch that moment and, and realize, oh my goodness, I could have erased that picture. All it required was to reach into my heart and say to Hashem, I really, really wish I never had done that. I really, really am niskarit. I have total harata. And had I gone through the tshuva process, I could have eliminated the picture, and I could have eliminated a day, a week, maybe a month, maybe a summer. The problem we face is, we don't feel it. We don't recognize it. We think, whatever, first of all, it's never going to happen. And besides, it doesn't matter, we'll all be angels in glee. And besides, it's grade point average, on balance, I'm okay. But more than anything, it won't be me. It's travel brochures. It's interesting, but it has nothing to do with me. I'll be dead. And I think this first point, just understanding that my body will be in the ground, but I will be there. And for eternity, I'll enjoy tremendous, tremendous pleasures for what I accomplished. And the opposite, if I could just come to that core cognition, could you imagine the way I would approach Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is a day that I could change the essence of who I am. I could change so many things. I could get rid of so many of those stains. And by the way, there might be many, many things that are great, but there was a part of it that wasn't so great. Or there might have been a kavana that wasn't proper. Or might have been an aspect of it. All of that I could get rid of. And the change that I could make for eternity on one Yom Kippur is beyond description. And I believe if we were only to just focus on this point alone, it would be very valuable and very important and very helpful for us to know and focus on Yom Kippur. But I think there's a much bigger picture here. You see, there's a fourth mistake we make about the world to come. And to understand that fourth mistake, let's focus on that discussion between Rabbi Huda Nasi and the wife of Rabbi Shem Bachalafta. Rabbi Huda Nasi said, if your shulchan is lacking, if something's off of your table, I'll fill it in. She comes and she says, bring me to the person who taught you Torah. And she says to Rabbi Huda Nasi, isn't it true that Hashem gives each tzaddik their own place? And isn't it true that each tzaddik has their own place? At which point Rabbi Huda Nasi is quiet, he agrees, and in fact, it was pretty clear that she was right and that the idea of returning that coin, that precious stone, was appropriate. So here's the question. 
how did she slug up Rabbi Yudah Nasi? What did she say? And to understand the fourth mistake that we make about the world to come, let me ask you a very simple question. Here's the question. Will Mr. Hashem all be there in the world to come? You, I, everyone we know. So, who? here's the question. Who's greater in the world to come, me or you? Right? I mean, we know, the Mitzvah Hashem tells us, it's all based on how much effort you put in, how much energy, how much you work, and the vast differences between people. So here's the question. Who's greater in the world to come, you or me? So let's make a cheshman. Let's say you and I decided we're going to make a cheshman. Who's greater in the world to come, you or me? All right, so let's begin. Let's take today. I got up in the morning. Um, I said moda'ani. Hopefully I said it with uh, kavana. I said brachas. Hopefully I did them right. Hopefully when I said hello to my wife, I was polite and nice. My kids, hopefully I was okay. Uh, you know, I said a hundred brachas during the day. I damn chakras. I learned. I, if you go through the amount of actions, deeds, and thoughts that I had from this morning till now, you'll find that it's in the thousands and thousands. If it's a hundred brachas a day, and if you sit down to learn one daf gemara, and you learn musa, and you get, before you know it, we're talking thousands and thousands of discrete actions. Well, let's assume it's 1,000 actions a day. Okay, 1,000 actions a day, so in the course of a year, it's 3.5 million odd actions. What that means is in 10 years, it's 35 million. By the time a person leaves this earth, we're talking hundreds of millions of separate actions that each one has to be weighed. That takes a pretty hefty computer to do all that calculation. But here's the next problem. The next problem is, you also <clears throat> went through a number of days, weeks, months. And each of your days had <clears throat> actions upon actions upon actions upon actions. We're talking about numbers that are so incalculable. So the first problem we have is <clears throat> that the sheer amount of actions, thoughts, and deeds that you and I are going to be involved in make it near impossible for me to know who's greater, me or you. Okay, that's one little technical issue. But there's another little problem. The Orch HaSadikim explains that there can be thousands of degrees of separation between the same act. He explains, an act done by a humble man could be a thousand times more acceptable to Hashem than the act done by an arrogant man. An act done with the right kavana could be a thousand times more acceptable, <coughs> or the opposite. Rabbi Sol Salant explains that there are literally thousands of degrees of separation within each action, meaning it's not just learning or dominating or chesed, <coughs> it's how much I intended it, how much I meant it, <coughs> how proper my kavana was, and it's not just like there's one action, it's a mitzvah or an avera. The quality <coughs> of it is vastly different to the extent that one can be a thousand times larger than the other. So it's not just that we're dealing with hundreds of millions of actions. Each discrete action could have hundreds and thousands of degrees of separation one to the other. So we're getting a little bit uh, into calculations that are pretty hard to calculate. But here's another little step involved. A number of years ago, when I ran, seriously, I was quite proud of the fact that I ran five miles in about 38 minutes, a little over seven minutes a mile, I felt, you know, I wasn't a kid anymore, and I was quite proud of that uh, of that time. And then I read about a fellow who ran five miles, also the same amount, same distance, and he ran, ran it in 50 minutes. I said, huh, that's strange. I did it in 38, and he did it in 50, and he's a Marine. Oh, my, a, a, a top Marine. I don't get it. Why, why, why does it take him 50 minutes? But then I read the rest of the article that he was carrying a pack with 75 pounds on in it. He ran five miles carrying a knapsack with 75-pound load in it. And to do that in 50 minutes is a mighty, mighty impressive feat. I don't care what level of fitness you're in. Here's the point. I don't have a clue to the load that you carry, and you don't have a clue to the load that I carry. I met a fellow who told me that he discovered at the age of 22 that he was dyslexic. He went to regular shivas, and he didn't learn a word. And everyone assumed that he was a quiet kid, no one sort of picked it up, under the radar, and he didn't discover until he was 22 that he couldn't read. Now, could you imagine that he and I being judged by the same criteria? I have many flaws, 
But thank God that was not one of them. And when you realize that each human being has a vastly different load, and I don't have a clue to your load, and you don't have a clue to my load, and what you realize is that we're not just dealing with hundreds of millions of discrete actions. And we're not just dealing with thousands of degrees of separation. <clears throat> your load and my load is vastly different. So when you do one thing, it might mean something. When I do something, it might mean something else. You might be carrying a 75-pound pack. I might not be. So <clears throat> it quickly becomes obvious that for you and I to measure who's greater in the world to come is a little difficult to do. But there's a much bigger problem that I'd like to clue you into. When one of my daughters was taking a music appreciation course, part of the course there was a symphony orchestra that was performing, and the class were given tickets, and they were allowed to bring family members. So my wife and I joined my daughter, and we went to see the Hungarian National Symphony Orchestra perform. Now, I'm not very into classical music, and I didn't know any of the pieces. Nevertheless, it was very engaging, very entertaining. I appreciated the the fine musicians, and I appreciated what they were doing. Um, and I was very, very much studying what was happening. Somewhere in the second movement, there's a lull, and a man walks onto stage, takes a position, and then a few moments later, later bangs a kettle drum. A few moments later, bangs a kettle drum second time. A few moments later, bangs a dr- kettle drum the third time. Then he walks off stage. <clears throat> and I realized that that fellow traveled all the way from Hungary to bang the kettle drum three times. Okay, that's this part in the symphony. <clears throat> Very interesting. <clears throat> now, I want you to imagine the following. Imagine you have a young boy whose father is the conductor of the Hungarian National Symphony. And because the father is a top musician, and his son is a natural student, the father teaches the son to play the flute, and the kid is incredible. By the age of four, he's playing melodies. And by five, he's playing sophisticated music. By six, he's considered a virtuoso. By seven years old, he's considered a a famous international star. They've never seen anything like it. The kid is incredible. And he's performing with the National Hungarian Symphony Orchestra. And he's performing, and suddenly a man comes on and bang once, bang twice, bang three times. And after the symphony, the kid goes over to his father, Dad, this little fiddle, this little, little flute that I play, it, it's so so tinny, and it's so small. I want to play the kettle drum. I want to bait. His father says, listen, you're and you're virtuoso on the flute. You're, you're, you're incredible. No, I want to play the kettle drum. I want to ba- and the kid says, this is all I need. This is what I want to be happy with. This is what I need. And he, again and again, he takes his flute and he bangs and he bangs, tries to make the noise, and he makes one of the greatest mistakes in his life. As a flutist, he might be incredibly talented, but to bang the kettle drum is a whole different instrument. You see, there are vast differences between human personalities human capacities, and human potentials. And when we're judged in the world to come, I'm not compared to you, and you're not compared to him, none of us are compared to Tzaddikim who lived many years ago. Each of us have a different role to play. And if my role to play is the cello, and your role to play is the violin, and someone else is the kettle drum, I'm not asked that I make a louder sound as you did. You're not asked did you make the same sound, Each of us have a different mission, a different role, and each of us are judged by vastly different capacities and vastly different roles that we play. And I believe that's exactly what Shimon Mechalapta's wife said to Mehudanasi. You cannot fill in that which my husband has, because that which is his is his. It's his mission. It's his role. His role is learning Torah and poverty, and all of your greatness, as great as you are, Rabbi Yudanasi, you don't have that schus. The Mashah explains that there are vast differences in the rewards given in the world to come, based completely on who you are, your capacity, your ability. And it could well be that that fellow who discovered at 22 years of age that he's dyslexic, who learned one Mishnah, <clears throat> one Black Amara, could have a thousand times more reward for that than I have for learning Shas, because he has a different role to play, and I've I believe that is why it's impossible for us human beings to judge. And I believe that this is a tremendous, tremendous concept that we have to think about as we approach Yom Kippur. 
You see Yom Kippur has two dimensions to it. <clears throat> Number one, it's a Yom Slicha Mechila. It's a day where a person can introspect, and a person can erase photos, entire days, entire actions that I did wrong. A person can turn to his creator and say, Hashem, I, I feel horrible, I feel terrible. I wish I'd never done that before. And if he does the tshuva process, it eradicates it, eliminates it. It's gone. And in that sense, Yom Kippur is a highly, highly valuable day. But there's another value in the Yom Kippur that might be equally important. You see, the Atsumo Shal Yom, the awesomeness of the day, as the fast wears on, and as your body becomes weaker, your mind gains clarity. And you're able to look back on your year. And you're able to look forward on the year to come. And the key question that you should be asking yourself is, am I happy with me? Am I the person that I wish to be? If I were to check out of this world now, if it were curtain down, done, body in the ground, am I pleased? Is this the end game? <clears throat> Is this where I want to be? Now hopefully, <clears throat> you're not satisfied. And hopefully there's a lot more. But what you got to do then is plan. How am I going to get there? But this is the big mistake that everyone makes. I look around the room and I say, I have to be like him. I got to be just like her. I got to be, uh-uh. I have to reach my potential. <clears throat> I have to grow. I have to be spiritually accomplished. But it's based on my talents, my abilities, based on my mission. And a person has to be very, very contemplative. <clears throat> a person has to think clearly ask himself, what are my strengths, what are my abilities, what are my talents, and he has to ask him or herself, what is it that I can contribute? What is it that I can do? What was I put on the planet to do? And while Yom Kippur is a very, very important day to eliminate sins, to stop the heavy burden that prevents us from growing, the other element of it is, it's a day of introspection, of thinking, of planning, of determining what is it that I want from me, where do I want to be? And when you understand that where I'm supposed to be is not where you're supposed to be. I'm supposed to reach my potential, I'm supposed to grow. We all have the Torah, we all have Tariag Mitzvahs, we all have to learn of the Daven, we all have to work on the basics. But each of us were given different talents, different strengths. You have to find your talents, you have to nurture them, you have to bring them out, and more than anything you have to ask, what can I do? What can I do to contribute? What can I do to help? And each person has their own talent set. And for one person, it might be just being a friend to a person in trouble. For another person, it might be just <clears throat> giving a small shear. If you happen to be a mother, you don't have to go very far to figure out what your avodas Hashem is. That's to be the best mother you can be to your children because that's right now, certainly if your kids are little, and that's your primary avodas Hashem. But understanding that each person has a different mission, given different talents, and understanding that the question that I have to ask myself is, am I happy with me? <clears throat> am I the person that I want to be at the end of the game? And if not, how am I going to get there? And that is one of the key questions the person has to ask himself. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous, tremendous concept. The first concept is we make mistakes about the world to come. And the first mistake we make is we think it's all angels in white. It's not true. We'll be vastly different based on how I use my time. And there's no unbalance. It's not like my GPA was a B plus, so I'm okay. Your GPA is your GPA, but every single action, it's like that Holocaust Museum, where every single photo, and that's the brilliant opportunity of Yom Kippur, and because all of us have done things that we shouldn't have done, whether it's Lashon Hara or whatever, and if you realize that I can undo them, I don't have to be burdened by them. It doesn't have to be part of my legacy. I can leave this earth clean of that. All I got to do is think, put the brain on, on, and turn to my Creator and do the steps of tshuva. And I highly recommend that you go to the Shmuz site, get the, listen to the series, the boot camp, the tshuva boot camp will give you an exact approach. But the point is, if you use the day properly, you can unshackle, you can undo tremendous amount of damage. If the problem that we have with death is we think it's like travel brochures, it's like interesting, the world to come, but I won't be there, that's something also that a person can understand on Yom Kippur. It will happen, many years from now, but there will be a time 
when my body's in the ground and I separate, but it's me, with all of my thoughts, all of my memories, everything that I did, and it's me for eternity. And when I understand that, I understand the incredible value of Yom Kippur. <clears throat> number one, to eliminate many, many things that I'm not happy with. <clears throat> but number two, to plan my future. To ask myself, what are my strengths, what are my talents, and to plan it appropriately. But I have to become a spiritually accomplished person within my own talents and <clears throat> within my own abilities. And I'd like to close with one last observation. For the year 2000, the, <clears throat> the Bear and Steinmetz group launched the famous Millennium Diamond exhibit, and in this they showed the Millennium Star. The Millennium Star Diamond is a 200-carat diamond. It's a blue color, but it's considered flawless internally and externally. It is the most exquisite diamond. If you know diamonds, literally it takes your breath away. I mean, a diamond, a one-carat flawless diamond is worth a king's ransom, this is priceless. They can't even really put a price on it. 203 carats, a near flawless diamond. It's just magnificent. That's not how the diamond began. Ten years earlier, they found a diamond in the rough that was 777 carats, a huge chunk. But here was the great challenge. A 777 carat diamond is huge, but many parts of it imperfect. Many parts of it are flawed, and cutting this to be the ultimate diamond <clears throat> was something that was a major challenge. The De Beer group hired the Steinmetz group to be the ones to cut it, and they spent three years planning the cut. You have to understand, they made a hundred models of the diamond, computer-generated, <clears throat> it was actually done with laser, it was done under sterile conditions in a laboratory, and the actual cut was done with tremendous, tremendous precision, the story is told that Nir Laviette, who was the, uh, the one who actually was the one who was in charge of the cutting, <clears throat> the story is told that after three years of planning and after a hundred different models, when it came time to push the button that the laser was going to cut it, he pushed it, <clears throat> the rough was cut away, and this flawless diamond came out. The story is told he passed out at the moment. Okay. Now I want you to imagine that you're Nir Laviette. And you planned this cut for three years, and you made all types of calculations, and you did it under the greatest possible conditions. And you push the button, and the rough is cut away, and you see this 200-carat diamond, and inside it is a black splotch right there. Oh my goodness, it ruined the diamond. A 200-carat diamond with a black splotch in the center of it is... What is it? Use it to cut <clears throat> machines with. My friends, do you understand the muscle? <clears throat> there are many, many things that you and I have done that we'll be hugely proud of, but they might be marred, they might be flawed, there might be things in them, <clears throat> wrong kavanas, wrong intention, whatever it may be, and if I understood the power of tshuva, <clears throat> if I understood I could get rid of the black marks, I could get rid of the photos, I <clears throat> get rid of events, all I have to do is stand in front of my Creator and say, Hashem, please forgive me. What I've done is wrong, and I made a plan not to do it anymore. And I seriously have a... I've left it. That process of real tshuva can eradicate, can eliminate, and black splotches can be removed. Entire days can be removed. And person has this incredible opportunity. Yom Kippur is a day where we're alive, we're awake, we're given much greater clarity of thought, much greater ability to plan, and more than anything, we're given the ability to change the course of my future, change individual acts, and change where I'm headed in life. And now, I'd like to open the floor to questions. Um, I definitely went longer than I initially had planned, but in any case, let's open the floor. If you have questions, um, please feel free. If you're shy, you can type them in. If you're a little bit braver, you can raise your hand. <clears throat> please feel free to raise your hand if you if you like. If not, I'll take. I'll start with some of the questions that are Typed in. <clears throat> okay. Question number one is, can we erase mistakes from many years ago? <clears throat> How can we possibly remember and ask forgiveness for all our errors? Okay. So those are two questions. <clears throat> Let's deal with one at a time. Can I eliminate um, errors from many years ago? The answer is absolutely. There's no time limit on tshuva. Um, <clears throat> in fact, oftentimes it's easier when you're further away from the avera. <clears throat> the pull 
is no longer there. And many times I tell people not to do tshuva. Certainly when you're involved with issues of, a, of desire, and etc., I usually counsel people not to do tshuva until they're many years away from it because it's a lot easier then and you don't get pulled back in. But the point is, absolutely, can you do it after? Yes. Now, how are we going to do it on everything? I mean, let's again, let's think about this. Let's assume that in a given day there were 1,000 acts. In a year, 3.5 million. And every act has many levels to it. And many, many, many differences of intention and many differences of how I did it. How am I going to do tshuva on 10 years worth of it? You're right. I'm never going to do complete tshuva, but Baruch Hashem, there's a siddur that Chazal created for us that goes through the alchets, the Hashamnus, and helps guide us through the process. And even though I can't remember each one, you do the process and you try your best, you pay attention as much as you can, and you do a partial tshuva. By the way, it's not an all or nothing. Rabbi Yonah explains that tshuva works incrementally. He says, imagine I have a stain on my coat. Imagine I have a beautiful white coat and his car splashes mud on it. So what do I do? I rub some of the mud off, so some of the mud is gone. And then I take a cloth and rub some more. There's still sort of like a a stain there. I rub some more with some detergent. I rub, I rub. Each rub gets away a little bit, a little bit, until I finally, finally rub it out. There's not even an indent. You can't even see the the shadow anymore. Explains Rebbein Yonah, that's how tshuva works. A little bit of charata removes a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. It's level after level. When you're dealing with multitudes, obviously you're not going to have that full sense of regret. <clears throat> Try your best, you follow the sitter, you use the words. <clears throat> Individual averas, it's better to really focus on and really <clears throat> try to undo. But again, we try our best and try to accomplish as much as we can. More than anything, Hashem helps. Hashem wants us to <clears throat> to succeed. And Hashem helps more than we're capable of doing. You have to do your part and try your best and, and Hashem helps. Okay, um, there are a lot of things that we don't remember we did wrong. How do we do tshuva? Right, you're right, absolutely correct. Again, you follow the sitter. You wonder, by the way, sometimes why all those sins, I did those? By the way, the answer is, yeah, uh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Every All you got to do is go through them, and if you don't remember, don't worry, it's it's on the record. You go through the sitter, you go through the achets, you go through the ashamnus, and hopefully they're broad categories. <clears throat> you do your best, and it takes away some. It works as much as you can, and you try <clears throat> You try to do your, the best you can. If anyone is brave, they can raise a hand, and I, I won't have to scream. That would be wonderful. Please feel free, if you have a question, to raise your hand if you have a question. If not, <clears throat> you can type it in if you're shy. Um, <clears throat> but please feel free to raise your hand. I don't have... Uh, Edward's not here, so there's no one brave. We're missing some of our regulars who are the uh, <clears throat> people who are brave enough to ask. Okay, <clears throat> no one gets questions. It's even better than I can, uh, than I could work on. Uh, I could work on the next moves. Um <clears throat> Okay, one thing I do want to say though, please, <clears throat> if you want to really change the direction of your life, I have a recommendation. There's only one way that I know to really do this, and that is to learn Musar. You see, if I'm going to learn Musar daily, it gives me the inspiration, it gives me the direction, it changes my direction in life. One thing that you can make up on Yom Kippur is to learn Musar on a daily basis. Now the problem that many of us face is that the Musar Svarim don't work. I look at the book and the book looks at me, but it doesn't... I, I have, many people have told me that. So with that in mind, I'd like to share with you one simple piece of advice. Either, if you can use the Musar Svarim themselves, great. If not... Please go to theshmuz.com. Type in the word Musavad, M-U-S-S-A-R-V-A-A-D. <clears throat> Type in Musavad, and you'll see it's an entire 30, uh, one of 32 series, Shmuzim, on the first four parakim of Sulsharm. If you listen to even 10 minutes a day, it'll take you through the year, and I guarantee you're going to be in a different place. Because if you learn Musar daily, it changes you, it gives you direction. I know this in my own life. I have a Masorah for my Rebbe, the Rishiv Zetzal used to say, you have to learn Musa every day, every day. And I did it throughout almost all of my adult life. There was a certain Kufa when I was a, I was a Rebbe in Yeshiva. And keep in mind, I was learning regularly, I was giving Shir, I was even giving Musa Shmuzim, but for some reason, <clears throat> my daily Musa Seder, I, I stopped, I neglected, I was too busy, whatever. I, I found that that was a Kufa in my life where I made mistakes, 
I did things wrong, and I realized this is not good. I'm re- but what, what, what happened to me? What happened was some of the freshness, some of the <clears throat> direction wasn't there. So I highly recommend you go to the shmuz.com and you type in Musarvad, M-U-S-S-A-R-V-A-A-D, and you'll see, you go through that step by step, it's 32 shiurim, and you start in the beginning, and again, it goes through the first four parakim of Sharm. I think it's a great way, if that works, great, if not, you go to Torah anytime, they have tremendous amount of material, and find someone who speaks to you, but make it a daily acceptance, I will learn Musa every day, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, if you can learn it from a safer, great, and not try to listen to someone who is inspiring and who deals with it, and that ultimately is one of the most powerful things. If a person turns to Hashem and says, listen, I want to change, I want to grow, I can't deal with all, I can't tackle every Avera, and I can't set my direction right now, I, I don't know, but I'm going to learn Musr every day, and I think that is one of the most powerful things a person could do, because that guarantees you're on the track. It guarantees that you keep moving, but you have to commit to it, you have to do it, it's 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes is better, but certainly at least 10 minutes, I'm going to learn Musr every day, you say that to Hashem, I think it's a very, very powerful schus. I want to thank you for joining, and um, um, I'm going to see if there's last question. Um, please feel free, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me. I'll gladly respond after. I want to th- wish you all a good adventure, a Gemar Chesimotova, and may Hashem answer all of your tefillahs Latov, and may we greet Mashiach Zidkenu this coming year. Thank you. A good yontif.